All right. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Ron Berger, the vision behind Expeditionary Learning, an award-winning English language arts curriculum from the U.S. Uh, Ron is the chief academic officer at EL and brings with him 40 years of experience as a teacher, and he has authored several books on education-related topics. He is a champion of excellence in education and believes that it can be achieved through project-based learning. He holds a master's from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he now teaches a course that uses exemplary student work to illuminate academic standards. Ron, it's an exciting moment for me. I must say I'm a huge fan of your work and we at Ivy follow the EL curriculum. And as far as I'm aware, we're the only EL school in Pakistan at the moment. Thank you for taking out the time to chat with me. How are you doing today? And how are things faring on your side of the world with the current COVID crisis? Uh, Leah, thank you so much for hosting me and thanks for being the only EL school in Pakistan. We're very honored to have you guys as part of our network. Um, and anything we can do to support your good work, we're really happy to. Um, thanks for the personal question. I'm personally fine during this um, health crisis. I live rurally. Um, you can see this is, this is a Zoom screen behind me, but it is what's right outside my door at my home. So I live, I, I built my own home in a rural place in, in Massachusetts, one of the states of the US, um, the Western part of the state where you were in school at Harvard. Right. And because I'm living rurally, you can see I don't really have close neighbors, so I don't need to wear a mask to be outdoors and, and I'm in a very low incidence area. So my family is healthy. I feel very fortunate. Um, but as a country, we're doing very poorly. I, I'm, I think we do not have the leadership we need to, to take this on well as a country. And so we're, I, you know, we're not making progress as a country health-wise or dealing well with issues of the economy or, or racism. I, like it's a hard time in America. So, yeah, I've heard that a lot of cases are increasing and uh, schools have, yeah. I think, opened up in some parts um, and that has not really um, panned out well. Um, right. And currently in Pakistan, there is also, the government has announced that they will be opening schools from 15 September, um, but there has been a lot of pushback to that um, on the parent end because everybody's really... Right. Uh, worried that they don't want to, you know, send their kids in a situation right. where we know that uh, we're, uh, you know, a country with uh, not enough resources in so many ways. So, um, yes, it's, it's a very difficult time and I hope things get better soon. I'm really hoping that um, there are vaccinations in place soon that um, children can get access to education. A huge chunk of Pakistani children who are studying in low-income schools have completely lost access to education. Right. And uh, that has been pretty sad and tragic. So um, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about expedition learning. In fact, that's the topic for today. Right. Um, and I know that expedition learning is um, a collaborative venture between uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education and Outward Bound Schools USA. Could you tell me a little bit about this collaboration? How did it all fall into place? Yeah, it's a great question, Aliyah. Um, so in the early 1990s, there was a US federal idea of funding new, new visions for schooling. And there was an organization called New American Schools that was started by the president of the United States at the time. Um, and there was a, a grant up to a million US dollars for any organization that could come up with a new idea for school. 
And at that time, there was an Outward Bound Center at Harvard Graduate School of Education, the Harvard Outward Bound Center. And the idea was born there to, what if we took the progressive education of Harvard Graduate School, the active learning, the focus on literacy, the focus on, on making learning public, and they combined it with the character basis of Outward Bound. So you know that Outward Bound is a wilderness organization, but they don't exist to teach wilderness skills. They exist to bring adults and children into the wilderness to work together to build their character, to make them better people. And it's about building teamwork. So when you're on an Outward Bound expedition, you and your crew have to make it to the top of the mountain. And it's not about any one of you getting there. It's about all of you getting there together. And so the idea was, could we build schools that are more of a team sport rather than an individual sport, where everyone is working for everyone's good in the school rather than certain kids trying to get ahead on their own. So there was an application written back then in 1992, and I was around at that time, sort of gives, gave some input to that, but we did not think it would get funded. There were 800, uh, different organizations that applied and they only funded 11 nationally. But shockingly, uh, expeditionary learning was funded by the federal government for a million dollars back then. And then we had to figure out what it was because we didn't really have it all thought out. Um, and a year later, it was approved for $3 million to try it out in low-income communities in America. And so we began with a set of 10 schools in different communities they had to be public schools that worked with low-income students. And it was pretty successful in the first three years. And after that, all the money went away. And so financially, as a nonprofit, we've had to have individual schools and districts pay us money to be their partner in this work. And that's where we've been able to get our money to continue. And we grew from 10 schools that first year to 150 schools and then decided we can't keep growing quickly and keep quality going. We can't go from 150 to 1500 or 15,000. We just can't, it's too hard to create good schools. You've created a school, you know how hard it is. You have to create a, it, there's so much detail and, and hard work to create a great school that you, can, you can't make it, you can't make hundreds of them easily. It's just impossible to do that well. So we thought if we're gonna reach more people in, in America and the world in a useful way, we should take the best learning from our schools, our 150 schools and create open resources. And that, that's why 10 years ago, we started creating books. We now have 10 books. We have 300 videos. And then we have this literacy curriculum, which is also we created free for the world. So that, and we have our Models of Excellence website. So what we've tried to do to scale our work is to offer free resources to anyone in the world that would like to use them as a way to spread rather than trying to continually create great schools. We, we're, having, you know, we, we're still working hard to keep the 150 schools within our network to be really good ones. Um, and now about half our work is partnering with large districts in America, cities in America where all the students use our literacy curriculum. Wonderful. So, um... I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested in knowing that, you know, when you started um, project-based learning um, at that time, at that point when, you know, get, you gave that idea uh, for funding. So how was, what was the reception like? At that point, was project-based learning that was catching on in the U.S.? Was it something new? Uh, what was the response to it? 
So there was a long heritage all the way back to the 1920s to the ed educational philosopher John Dewey of hands-on project-based learning. And there was a, a resurgence of it, I think, in the 1980s. Uh, and portfolio assessment and project-based learning in the early 90s was really catching around the country. When we took it up, we didn't invent any of it, but we were trying to connect the work that kids were doing with contributing to the world, with making their work meaningful by having the, their learning connected to contributing some way to their school community, to their broader community, putting them on a mission to get smart, to do good. And there was a lot of resonance in the early 90s, Aaliyah, with that. I will say, though, that it was exactly the same point by the mid-90s where there was a change in America to focus much more strictly on only test scores. There was a new legislation across the country. The legislation was called No Child Left Behind. Yes. And it required every state to come up with a new set of standards and every state to test children at every grade level between third grade and, and 12th grade within our system. And states would, be, would penalize schools if they didn't reach high enough levels in those. And so right after we got started, there was actually an anti-project-based learning kind of era and for the next 10 or 15 years, the only thing that districts were held accountable for was test scores. So it was a high accountability period where I didn't know if we could keep flourishing. Like it was very hard to stay afloat. And we really only stayed afloat during those years because our kids did get good test scores. So we didn't pay a penalty for them. If they hadn't gotten good test scores in our schools, we would have gone away as an organization. But that era seems to be coming to an end because it didn't work in America. Focusing only on test scores did not actually help the kids who needed it most. It ended up narrowing their education to ways that it, it no longer was inspiring to them. It no longer in, you know, helped them have the conditions they needed to learn. And I think there's now an awakening in America that, that the science of learning and development, that learning is social and emotional, that kids have to feel valued to learn. They have to feel like they belong in their academic community to learn. That if we don't have humane and good places in schools where kids feel good about themselves, they're not going to put, invest their heart in their learning. And I think the narrowness of that era that tests are the only thing that matter and test preparation should be the only point of schools has ended now or is ending in America because people are realizing it never actually worked that well. As a nation, our test scores didn't actually get much better. Wow, that is some deep insight. Um, right now in Pakistan, I would say we're in that phase where uh, test scores or grades do matter a lot. Um, mostly there is a Cambridge system here and there are O-levels and A-levels and there is a certain, yes. a certain expectation of grades. And um, I think that really kind of reduces student learning in many ways and limits it to teaching to the test. And um, ideas like democratic schooling or project-based schooling are very new uh, here and very different. So um, even if we say project, we usually mean that there is a chart paper and uh, a couple of pictures on that and a student just holding that up is is the is the project i mean it's 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 a very narrow and a typical view of looking at projects but that that's how we've um kind of uh traditionally looked at it so i would ask how is 
project-based learning different from doing projects at school? Is there a difference um, and what is it? Yeah, I, it's a really important distinction. So a lot of people don't take projects seriously because there is a history everywhere, not you know, in the US, but also in India, Pakistan and places where when the word project comes up, people think of it as an extra thing like if you, as long as you do your real learning, you learn your literacy, you learn your mathematics, then maybe you can do a little project at the end. Like it's the icing on the cake. It's the dessert of the meal. And, you know, we have always felt like it's a different way of thinking is to make the project the main course, that the project is through the project, you are learning skills, your important literacy and mathematical skills for a purpose. And so the project becomes something where kids are creating something they value. They are using their literacy and mathematical skills, their historical learning, in order to create something that they're proud of and that they value. It doesn't mean that they're not working hard at learning their literacy. It doesn't mean that they're not working hard at learning their mathematics, but they're seeing it as in service of doing something that's good for the world, that they can offer to their school community or the broader community. And what we found is that it just, it inspires kids to care in a whole different way. There are always going to be kids who care about getting good grades and good test scores. And there are always going to be kids whose families will keep them on path for that. But there's many kids who don't come from families who have that privilege of being able to help them all the time. And kids who feel like, I'm just not a good student in that way. Like, well, I shouldn't try. I, I'm never the top student. I'm never the good test taker. And they start out when they're young, when they're five and six and seven years old, really full of life. And by the time they're teenagers, they've, they've backed off. They feel like school is not the place where I shine. And they just, they don't care anymore. And in contrast, when kids feel like the work we're doing really matters, people in our community love what we're doing. We love creating great things that people beyond our school see and value. They don't lose that heart. Like they, they, their project becomes something significant. And so, We've spent the last 25 years collecting incredible student projects from around the world that kids do that I think can surprise people that kids have the capacity to do beautiful things, even when they're very young. Beautiful. Kids have the capacity to do beautiful things. What a wonderful line. Um, I feel that uh, Yale has a very powerful approach to defining uh, student achievement. And um, I mean, I read that line many, many times, and each time I read it, it makes the same impact on me that, that when you go out into the world, you're not judged just on your performance in academic skills, but um, also on the quality of your work and on the quality of your character. And it is so true and it is so deep. Uh, could, you, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so we have often said in EL that, that, that schools often, and it's not their fault, it's the pressure of, of how, how the schools are assessed. Schools often end up adopting a one-dimensional view of what student achievement and student success means. And that one dimension is their ability to get good test grades, to right. good test scores, really in just in two subjects too, mathematics and literacy. Yeah. Um, well, at least in the U.S., those are the, the tested subjects that, that are Oh, it's, it's the same here as well. <laughs> yeah. And 
in life, once you are done, you're not judged by your test scores anymore. Like in life, you really are judged by two things, the quality of human being you are and the quality of work that you do. And it doesn't matter what career or what life choice you make. It's always the quality of your work and the quality of who you are, which will guarantee your success. And we don't actually have often the freedom in schools to really focus on doing high quality work and realizing that schools are the place where kids learn to be good citizens and good people. Many schools in America will say to us, we can't think about student character because that's the job of the family or that's the job of the church or that's the job of outside. It's not our job. And we always say, you don't have a choice about this. The kids are with you six or seven hours a day. They're learning how to be people in a group that you are shaping them and you're either shaping them poorly or well, like there's no neutral here. You're making them more responsible and more respectful and more compassionate and more courageous and more honest or less so. Like you're either making them better people or worse people. You, there's no neutral. And so you need to lean in to making sure you're shaping their character in good ways. So we have this, what we call a three-dimensional view of student achievement, which is mastery of the knowledge and skills for academics and the character that students have to be good people, to be respectful of others, compassionate of others, courageous in their lives, have integrity in their lives. And lastly, that they have a good work ethic and that they take pride and have high standards in their work, which is not the same thing as learning to study for a test. No. People that are great test takers are not always the people with the best work ethic and the best high standards for what they do and vice versa. Like it's a craftsmanship is a different skill and a different disposition in life than being a good test taker. And so we want schools that build craftspeople that feel like I'm going to do things well. When I take it on, I'm going to make it really beautiful, sophisticated, accurate, well done. Like I, I'm going to take pride in my work. So that's our three dimensional view. That is a very different view. And it's, it's incredible that, I mean, I haven't ever heard of looking at, at uh, student achievement from this lens. It's absolutely amazing. And, and I actually saw it in action because uh, this year, um, our first graders were doing a unit on birds and they made a lot of uh, iterations in their scientific drawings of birds. And I did not expect to see such a difference in each draft and such superior quality work being produced at each level. And, and critique and feedback was a, a very important part of this entire process. So why are critique and iterations of writing and drawing such an important element in EL? Like how does the critique part of it fit into this and, and what is its purpose? Yeah, I'm so glad you had that good experience with that. It's been one of my big passions in life that kids can do way higher quality, much higher quality work than we imagine if we give them the time to do multiple drafts and if they get critique in between drafts from experts and from their peers and from their teachers, like they can continually get better and do things that we can't imagine. And the the way I'm most known in the world actually is this video, Austin's Butterfly, about a little first grade boy who's redrafting his butterfly based on his peers' critique. And I think the reason it's so important is because that's the way life works. Right? If you're an architect and you're designing a building or you're an engineer and you're designing the, the technical aspects of that building, you don't sit down by yourself and do one draft and it's done. Right? You, work on a very rough draft of it. And then you bring in a whole team of people to critique you and look at it and different 
stakeholders and constituents and you make changes and you go back and you redraft and then you represent it to a team of experts and they critique you again and you redo it again. When someone writes a novel, it can go through 10 drafts, 20 drafts, 100 drafts. If you design a building, it's gonna go through all those drafts. If you, if you create a bill in a legislature that's going to become a law, it goes through draft after draft. Like in real life, you're designing clothing, designing scientific instruments. That's the way life actually works. You don't rush something as a final draft the first time you do it and get no advice on it. In real life, you work as a team to create a first draft and you get critique and you revise it and you test it out and you revise it again. And so what a different thing when kids are doing that already in first grade. Like think of their potential when they're in 10th grade, when they're going off to university. Like that's part of their ethic now is we're gonna do things well and we're gonna get the critique we need to make them better. Because that, that's what real life is and school should be that way as well. I agree. I actually completely wholeheartedly agree because um, I've actually seen it, it happen in the classroom. I've seen kids being super excited about a rainbow lorikeet, just, just wanting to make it over and over again, trying to get the feathers right or the bill right or the legs right. It was, it was really interesting to watch that. It's a, it's a fascinating process. So um, close reading is another important element in EL and we do a lot of close reading in our classes as well. And it's, again, it's, it's another practice that I haven't seen happen much in Pakistan. So we do, do, do a lot of read alouds and book discussions, but yeah. I feel like a close read aloud is a few notches above that because it, it's not at the student's independent reading level. It, it's a little, a few levels or exile levels higher than their independent reading level. So what would you say is the benefit of this practice? Yeah, you know, it's funny. In some ways, it comes right back to our roots with Outward Bound, the wilderness organization. Wow. Because the whole point of Outward Bound is you should push yourself a little further than you think you can go. Like, that's how you grow. You grow by pushing yourself a little beyond what you think you can do. And so on Outward Bound, you get a group of people in the wilderness and you look at the mountain, you say, we're going to get up that mountain. And people are a little intimidated. Right? They're thinking, I, I don't think I can get up that mountain, or I don't think I can get out on that ocean or get down these rapids in this river safely. And together you figure out how to do it. And people are a little scared in the middle of it. And, and it's hard. It's, and there's sweat and there's like, it's not easy. But when they get to the top of the mountain, there's a pride of, I, I could do more than I thought I could. Like I can push myself and my teammates to do more than we thought was possible. And more than you think possible is part of the Outward Bound slogan. That's the way we, we, we think about literacy. Like when you take on literacy with kids where they take on something together as a team, that's harder than they thought they could do. Like this reading is a little too hard for us. We don't know all the words here. We, it, it's, it's a scary for us. When those kids as a group succeed in thinking we made sense of this piece, then they feel like, ah, I, like, I can do more than I thought I could. It gives them courage. It gives them literacy courage. It gives them academic courage to try harder next time and not give up when they encounter something that's hard. And the reason that close reads really matters, you, you don't close read the whole book, right? You close read a section because you want to take on something that's small as a group, but scary. It's a little too hard, but it's, you can do it together. 
And if together you feel like we can make our way through harder terrain than we thought we could, every kid leads with a different sense of self. They have more confidence as a reader because they know they conquered something harder than they thought. And they're less intimidated next time when they see words they don't know or, or grammar that they don't understand right away. Because they think, I've done this before. I've, I've been scared before and I made it through okay. Like I made sense of this. Yeah. And so it's, a, it's, it's sort of a fitness training that you continually get challenged to push yourself a little further than you thought you could. It's kind of like being an intellectual adventurer, um, just like being a wilderness adventurer, um, exactly. right? And so I feel like that's a, something similar. So um, I remember that while I was at Harvard, uh, one of my professors were, was researching on um, an instrument to measure um, academic language. Um, at elementary levels, at upper elementary levels. So um, I realized uh, in the EL curriculum as well, um, grade three onwards, I think, there is um, academic languages introduced, academic world wa uh, word walls, interactive word walls. Can, can right. you tell me a little bit about that? Um, why, are, why is it important to introduce students to academic language and what yeah. is an interactive word wall? So yeah, two good questions. So first, there is always going to be vocabulary that students encounter that they don't know. Yes. And if it's in a particular field, right, if, it, if it's in a scientific field or an historical field or an athletic sports kind of area, there's going to be technical language that doesn't cross over into other domains, that's just specific to, to herpetology, specific to this period of history. But academic language is the language that crosses all those barriers. It's the language that is used in academia, the language that's used in literature, the language that's used in science, those same kind of words that come up regularly when you read scholarly work. And some students have the advantage of growing up in families where that's the language that they hear all the time. There are students who grow up where academic language is at their breakfast table and at their dinner table, and it's the way their parents converse with each other. And it becomes part of their lexicon. It becomes part of their own vocabulary. There are other students who grow up in, in places where they don't even have access to their parents all the time because their parents are off working or their parents can't be around, or they're, they're, they're not in a stable family situation, or their parents did not grow up with much schooling. So they don't have that academic language and the kids are not hearing it. Those kids are gonna be at a profound disadvantage in a school setting if the academic language, the, the, the more complicated words that are just a part of academia are not something that they're familiar with. If we can help level the playing field for those kids by making sure we're explicit about naming academic language with kids right from the start, and, and saying, these are the kind of words that will crop up all the time for you as you go on in your learning, that the earlier you get them, the better. Now, for some kids, they'll think, yeah, those are the words that are used in my house. I know them already. Many kids won't at all. They'll feel like those are new words to me, but giving them those words empowers them. And the reason I love an interactive word wall is that a static word wall is just taking the words you've learned and putting them on the wall and having a definition for them. And that's just a memorization exercise. So it's the lowest level of learning. An interactive word wall is when you have all those words on a bulletin board or a whiteboard or a blackboard or a place on the floor and students are charged with, with rearranging the words to build a relationship. To, so students could say, this word is actually the main category and these are all subcategories of that. And then these things sort of fit under each. So, or I see this more as a process, like you start with this word 
and then this happens next and this happens and then other kids will say no i would organize it this way i think i think these are part of a set like these words go together because they describe this kind of thing and i think these words in my way of thinking go together because of this and by physically moving the words and interacting with the words and describing why they're arranging them the way they are they're building a thought map of how these words interrelate to each other and all the other kids are then listening and thinking oh that's what that word means or i didn't ever really understand what that word means because you're redefining the words every time you're redefining their relationship to similar words so by building these thought maps of how words interrelate and how they connect with each other you allow kids to creatively get a much deeper understanding of them. So a, a interactive word well is like a living thing. It can, it's, it's a place for creativity with language that is to me very exciting. And it's a wonderful way of rearranging your schema around certain vocabulary and understanding how, how things work. So I think students really benefit from having that kind of exposure versus just having something up on a wall right. where they can't interact much. Um, so speaking about how different children have different needs or, and view things differently, we know that every EL classroom is differentiated um, and students have uh, different um, access to materials and resources and there are scaffolds and there are different levels of support. And right. all of this is stemming from the Universal Design for, for Learning framework. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the UDL framework and its benefits? Yeah, so again, I would bring this back to real life. Like if, if we go back to that fictional architecture firm that has engineers and architects designing a building, there's nobody in that studio who's gonna say, um, I'm gonna do a lousy job because I'm, I have a disability with this or I'm in a wheelchair or I tend, sometimes I reverse numbers. Or, everyone is going to think I'm going to figure out how to make this happen. I'm going to get the, uh, the, I'm going to customize my work environment and the process that I use so that there's no mistakes in my work. I, and it, that might mean I have someone proofreading my work. That might mean I have some assistance with technical work. That might mean I, I'm using some computer aided design work here that will help account for my challenges, but everyone's going to figure what we need to do is create a great building. And so whatever accommodations we need to have happen so that comes out, we'll just make. We're gonna figure out how to build on everyone's strengths and accommodate people's challenges. The classroom should also be that way. The classroom should feel like these are the learning targets. These are the goals that we all want, we wanna have every kid reach. We shouldn't differentiate the goals to say Ron's goals are gonna be kind of low because he's not very strong, but Aaliyah's goals are gonna be very high. We wanna set high goals for everyone. However, we might say, well, but Ron has these issues. He's in a wheelchair or he has processing issues or he has language issues or he, or he has memory issues, right? So how, what are the kinds of accommodations we can do so that Ron can still come up with a high quality work that Aliyah is doing? What are some strategies we can use? And so you're thinking really of not lowering the outcomes for kids, but changing the conditions by which every kid can get to that same outcomes, making sure that every kid can get there. And having kids be self-advocates for that. So kids understanding that they may need to, to have someone else support in some way, or they may need a little extra time for this thing, or they may need a different way of sitting for this to happen, or more accessibility physically for something. In the end, it should be about the quality of what you can do 
rather than your own limitations. Like you should figure out what are the, what are the modifications you need so you can do good work. And so you take everybody together. Everybody's going towards the same goal together. Yes. Yeah, so, so that is a great segue into my next question that I've heard you speak uh, a lot about creating a culture of excellence. And I have seen that passion in you and when you talk about, you know, as an educator, as a craftsman, when you talk about excellence. Um, I've also read a little bit about the Good Work Project by Dr. Howard Gardner. And, um, yeah. and I feel that that it is imperative that schools build this culture of excellence and ethics and good work in everything they do. So how do you feel schools can go about building this culture among students and staff? Yeah, I, I feel like we often in the world feel like kids themselves carry with them their own dispositions, their own character. People will say, well, he's a lazy kid. She's a hardworking kid. He's a mean kid. He's, she's a compassionate kid. As if those things are traits that they're born with and they keep their whole life. And that's not my view at all. My view is kids come into a culture and they try to fit in. And if that culture is a culture that values compassion and integrity and hard work, they'll think to fit in here, I have to start being that way. And if it, if it, if it's the opposite, they will learn to be that way. And so I think we are responsible for the character that we see in our kids by building the culture that will help them fit in. And that means that we have to be explicit about those qualities in our culture, first as a staff, and then as a whole school, about what are we modeling for kids? If we want kids to be courageous and take risks in their learning, we have to model that as adults. If we want them to treat each other respectfully and compassionately, we have to model that as adults in our building. So I think the first step in building a positive school culture is for the staff themselves to have those conversations about what are we modeling for our kids? Are we modeling the things we want? If we're not modeling academic courage and academic compassion, our kids are not gonna pick it up whatever we say, it's the way we act toward each other and the way we act toward them that they will learn from. And for kids, if a new kid were to transfer Aaliyah into your school, we would hope that the new kid would sort of check out the scene and see how nice do I have to be? How hard do I have to work? How much do I have to care about the quality of what I do? And they'd look at the other kids and what they're doing and they would think, wow, there's high standards here. Like in this school, kids treat each other well and they work pretty hard and they care a lot about what they turn in. And so if I wanna fit in here, I, gotta, I guess that's the way I gotta be. And I think that is what shapes kids is wanting to fit into a peer culture that has those values. And we have to be explicit about making those values good and strong. I think we've already had some um, such situations like you mentioned, some success stories, some turnarounds. And, um, and we've tried to build the crew culture um, from EL as well. And this year we're working a lot on We Are Crew, uh, which is a um, great. great idea. So um, in Pakistan, we're still moving towards perceptions of classrooms that are active. And many still believe, in fact, most people believe that the traditional model of education with uniforms and students seated at desks and listening to a lecture is a way that a classroom should look. But if I ask you what a project-based classroom looks like in action, what would you say? 
Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I want to thank you for taking on the, the, the spirit of crew, which is just to say to everyone, it's the, it's the outward bound word and the EL word for that spirit of looking out for each other and, and being, being your best self with others. Um, we have a new book that's actually coming up this week. Um, where I am a co-author of it, and it's called We Are Crew, and it's about building school cultures. And I will say that in addition to the book that comes out this week, we have 38 videos that go along with it and an, a free online toolkit of the, the spirit of crew and the structure of crew in schools. That, Cause that's what we believe. Like it's really about being part of a team. It's a, it's a teamwork approach to school. Um, I think there, when we think of what a good classroom is, it's, it's easy to try to think what worked long ago, a hundred years ago, is the way schools should look today, right? A hundred years ago, kids would sit up straight in their uniforms and listen to a lecture. And so if that's the way it was then, that's the way it should be now. But nobody would say the way a plane looked, like getting onto a plane a hundred years ago with a, you know, with a dashboard that, that was just a steering wheel and, no, and, a, and a, a, a stick. Yeah is the way a modern plane should look. Like you get on a modern plane and, and it's incredibly changed. A modern hospital is nothing like a hospital of a hundred years ago. Uh, any kind of like the way we communicate, the way we use our phones, the way we live, the internet, like the entire world has changed. And yet there's something about us that makes us think, yeah, but school should look exactly like it did a hundred years ago, <laughs> even though the world is totally different. Yeah. It, it doesn't really make sense when we think about it, but it's what, but I understand it's like people feel like that's the way it looked like when I was in school. So they have a nostalgic attachment to it. It's like that it worked for me. So it should work yes. today. Yes. And so it's hard to let go of that. And I understand that part. I think it scares people when they think, but what if kids weren't sitting quietly at their desks listening? Like it, it might be chaos. And so I think what's important in a classroom is actually not that kids are sitting still, but that they're focused and respectful. That might be focused and respectful while being really active. Because you know, if you walked into that architecture studio where people are designing places and engineers are working and architects are working in their drafting, it, it'll be like a busy beehive of people walking around, conferring, talking, you know, yeah. putting up mock-ups, critiquing each other's work, some people working quietly, some people work. That's the way a classroom could be. A classroom could be everyone comes together for a critique or for a quick lesson, and then they're back busy doing their work, creating things, critiquing each other, just like a real workplace. In, in any real workplace in the world, people are busy doing things. That's the way a classroom of today should look, like a busy workplace, like an architecture studio, like a hospital, like a place where good things are happening. And I think people have the fear that it will be chaotic and kids will misbehave, but that's not about making them sit silently and be obedient. It's about having the classroom culture and norms where kids know they need to be focused. They need to keep their voices sort of quiet when other kids are working, but they can collaborate. They can work on as a team on things. They can ask for critique from each other. They can be busy together in positive ways. And so productive chatter in a classroom where kids are focused and learning is like productive chatter in a good workplace. And that's the, that's the role model I think we should have. I agree. And, and um, a lot of our classrooms are actually 
a little bit active and uh, collaborative and discussion-based and there's a lot happening that way and it doesn't seem like it's out of sync somehow it's it's somehow still even if it's collaborative even if people are moving around it somehow feels like everybody has a purpose and uh, some kind of a goal um, and they're trying to work together to achieve something and I think that's kind of different from the way it usually happens here um, so uh, just my last question Ron uh, what are um, the biggest challenges for a project-based learning teacher and and what is your advice uh, to all such teachers in Pakistan who are new to the idea? Yeah, I would say um, the challenges with project-based learning are first, make sure that if you're taking on a project, that the project includes really core academic skills and concepts and, and understandings that you feel like are essential for kids to have and that those are at the heart of the project itself. Otherwise, you'll have a hard time feeling like it's okay to spend a lot of time on the project. If you think they'll do their important learning, and then if we have time, we'll fit in the project, it's really hard to prioritize time for the project. And when you do, you'll feel guilty because they're not doing what they're supposed to. But if, for example, your kids are working on reading and researching skills, and the project that you choose has a whole lot of reading and researching where they have to work with you to learn those skills, then while you're working on the project, you're teaching them and they're learning the exact same skills that they would have otherwise, except in this point, they're in service of them creating something that they're gonna be very proud of. So there have to be the essential learning targets and skills built into the project so that you can spend time right in the core of your day working on it. And you don't feel like, I have to, you know, get all my learning done before the actual project starts. The project should Be build important and challenging skills, academic skills, right into the heart of it. Also, I feel like the project is going to take longer than you think. Because we have this pattern in our schools, all of us have, of being on this treadmill of doing work, turning it in, doing work, turning it in, doing work, turning it in. That's not the way a project, a project is more like designing a building as an architect or writing a novel. It's gonna go through drafts and iterations, it's gonna take time and it typically takes longer than you think. And so if a teacher is taking on project-based learning, I would always say to her or to him, um, figure out how much time it's gonna take you and then double it really. Like it's gonna take twice as long as you think to do it well. And so give yourself that space. Think this project seems like it's gonna be three weeks so it's probably gonna be six weeks because we're gonna do it really well and we're gonna get really involved in it and it's gonna get deeper than we think it is. So give yourself space to do it well. Bring in some outside experts. So the kids are feeling like, oh, we're gonna get an ornithologist to come teach us about birds. We're gonna get an author to come in to teach us about writing. We're gonna get an historian to come in and teach us about the, the place we're going to. Like it brings excitement to think there's people in the real world who will care about our project and can bring us some expertise. That way the teacher isn't the expert, the teacher is the facilitator of the project and the expert is this cool person you found in your community who can come in and help you get better with your project. And make sure that the project is gonna have a, a product that you're gonna share with an audience beyond your classroom. So the kids are thinking, we're not just doing this for our teacher, we're doing this for the senior citizens, we're doing it for the preschool, we're doing it for the community library, we're doing it for this local business. Like, we're doing something that people will care about beyond us, so we have to really do it well. And the last thing I would say is, it's okay to start small. 
even a very small project can make a real difference if it's done well. Because if a kid does a small project, but they do it way better than they ever thought they could, then they become a different person. Their standards for themselves are higher forever. And so the project that I'm best known for is this Austin's Butterfly Project, where a little first grade boy just drew a butterfly for a card that was going to be used to, to raise money for butterfly habitats. But he did six drafts of this butterfly and he went over and over and then he researched it with his older uh, student buddy and they wrote the information about the butterfly on the back of the card and they eventually got them printed and they got them sold all over the state and they raised money. And even though the end product is this one little card, it's just one card that he did, for the rest of his life, he'll feel like, I worked really hard on that and it was beautiful. And like, that's what I'm capable of. I'm capable of way more than where I started. Like if I put my heart into things and if I get critique and if I really work on it, I can do important work in the world. And so even a small project, if it's well done, can have a big impact. So it doesn't have to be a giant project. It should do, take on something small, take a lot of time and do it really well and surprise the parents, surprise the kids, surprise your community with, it's way better than you thought it would be. Wow. Um, I've actually seen that in action with our kids. Uh, they were working on a project to save the banyan trees and they met yes. with a local activist um, in, a, in a park that was actually surrounded by heritage banyan trees. And she was so inspirational. I mean, I remember that when they were first walking into the park, these were second graders. They were they were not impressed. They were like, oh, there's trash burning there. This place is so hot. I don't know why I'm here. And then, and then they met her and she spoke to them for about 15 minutes uh, about how the government is working really hard and how she's helping the government to protect these heritage banyans, which have been around for hundreds of years. And they came back to class and they were like a completely different bunch. Yes. They, they weren't even talking for a little while. They were, that, they were totally quiet. And then they, one of them was like, I think we need to do something. And then there was another kid who was like, I think we need to go visit the oldest banyan in the zoological gardens. And then a third one was like, I think I want to raise awareness. And, and so it just went on and on and they just yeah. started making videos and writing poems and essays. And it was fascinating. It was amazing how just one little 15 minute talk with an expert who was actually solving a real world problem how it actually changed the, their entire perspective. Was, That's a beautiful story. I was able to see one of those videos of their work and it, it's, I think it's terrific. That's the kind of thing that will stay with a kid for her whole life. I agree, I agree. So thank you, Ron. It's, it's really been a pleasure talking to you and hearing from you as someone who has designed and is working closely with the curriculum that we use here at Ivy. I am so inspired by the good work that you're doing. And I heard you talking about how you used to carry around student work in your bags and how your bins in office are filled with student samples of work. And it just makes me feel so grateful to have people like you in the world who are working so tirelessly in the field of education. Um, thank you so much for changing so many lives. Well, thank you. I hope I get to visit your school someday. Um, and please, <laughs> you and all of your staff, please, any of our resources that you can use, everything we create, other than our books, which we can't give away, but everything else is free and open. <laughs> so please go on our websites, download anything, use anything that, that's useful to you, because we, we're so happy that you're doing this great work. 
uh, in Pakistan, and um, I, I hope we can share more in the future.